Section 9 of Magna Carta Commemoration Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Magna Carta and the Common Law by Charles Howard McIlwain, Professor of History and Government, Harvard University. Part 2 our real difficulty arises with the question what was the real nature of these statuta after the meaning of the word had been fixed and how did they differ if at all from the law that preceded them and from enactments which were not termed statutes the subject of the relation of enactment to the law which precedes as that relation was understood in the later middle ages is a subject that has received a good deal of attention in recent years we have passed beyond the naive view that men of the middle ages must have understood that relation just as we understand it today. we are trying to discover what the men of that time really thought about it for example mr lapsley's view that the well-known declaration of parliament in thirteen twenty two seeming to require the participation of all the estates of the realm in binding legislation applied merely to such constitutional arrangements as had been effected by the ordinances of thirteen eleven or professor merriman's interpretation of parliament's legislative functions as the repealing rather than the enacting of law as an alternative interpretation i submit an explanation which might be summarized as follows first enactments of substantive law in england in the later middle ages were made for the general purpose of affirming the law already approved or of removing abuses which hindered its due execution pour sûrement garder les lois overdue execution et astif remedy pour abusion de la loi en usurpation such affirmance implied frequent interpretation the supplying of additional penalties to secure proper execution and even supplemental enactments for the same purpose this eventually led to changes in the law itself but such changes came gradually and in the main only incidentally and were not the main purpose of enactment repeal of the laws used and approved is in the beginning not thought of it comes very gradually and in the guise of the removal of provisions which have wrongfully interpreted or added to the old law and tended to the introduction of abuses rather than the removal of them the substance of the old law itself is in theory not repealable at least in early times when statutes are repealed the oft-repeated reason is that they are against the law of the land or prerogative repeal is strictly in the beginning nothing more than a remedy pour abusion de la loi en usurpation occasionally in times of disorder whole parliaments were repealed in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries but the reason alleged is usually that their summons is irregular or their acts unlawful it is only at a comparatively late period that the repeal of statutes is openly avowed as one of the purposes of parliament even then such a power is hardly considered as reaching the central principles of the common law 
on the contrary an examination of parliamentary rolls of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries will show that the first business of a parliament is the re-enactment or affirmance of the whole body of the fundamental law including the statutes of the king's predecessors this is nearly always stated among the purposes of the parliament in the pronunciationes and it is almost invariably prayed for first among the petitions of the commons it would not be beyond the truth to say that in this period parliament was in its legislative capacity above anything else an affirming body for such affirmations en bloc are almost invariable it is only in the latter part of this period that the commons in their petition for the affirmance of preceding enactments begin to add the significant phrase et nion repelle there is a remarkable and possibly not accidental similarity between these repeated affirmations at the opening of each parliament and the earlier proclamations of the king's peace at the beginning of each reign second participation in the enactment of such laws is based on the theory that the binding enactment of a law can be made only by those whom it touches it must be a law approbata utentium to use bracton's phrase if an enactment is to bind the clergy the clergy must assent to one binding the baronage the barons must assent a provision affecting merchants only is binding on account of their consent alone and the law of particular districts is recognized as valid more approbata utentium but likewise what touches all should be approved by all footnote this famous sentence appeared in the writs of summons to the clergy for the model parliament of twelve ninety five the writs begin as follows sicut lex justissima provida circumspectione sacrorum principum stabilita hortatur et statuit ut quod omnes tangit ab omnibus approbetur sic et nimis evidenter ut communibus periculis per remedia provisa communiter obvietur the lex here referred to is probably from justinian's code five fifty nine five where nothing of a political character is referred to but only the common action of several co-tutores appointed under a will or otherwise the original words are ut quod omnes similiter tangit ab omnibus comprobetur it is interesting to note that in the supplementary title de regula juris at the end of the sext published three years after edward's writs in twelve ninety eight boniface the eighth includes this maxim as regular twenty nine quod omnes tangit debet ab omnibus approbari End footnote. and what touches all is the law common to all the lex communis lex terrae lex regni on this basis of consent glanville had tried to fit feudal conditions into roman terms by saying that the people had enacted a law that had been approved by immemorial custom much in the same way that roman lawyers ages before him had interpreted the uti legacit of the twelve tables in the development of the law of testamentary succession 
if this were true it would not be absurd to assimilate english custom with roman lex it certainly was observed pro lege all this is clear enough for local and particular customs but what of the common law how can it really be said to be enacted affirmed and approbata utentium omnium for much of the thirteenth century the baronage lay and ecclesiastical made good their claim that they alone were the populace that all included none beyond themselves populace is frequently used in that sense at that time and their assent seems to have been considered the assent of the realm but by the fourteenth century this was changed other communes besides theirs were making themselves felt in the national councils the communitas baccalariae angliae and the communities of the towns who considered themselves a part of the communitas angliae to which the lex communis applied it is a striking fact that edward's principle that what touches all should be approved by all was carried no further than those communities until the reform bills of the nineteenth century those had a right to participate in the enactment of common law to whom common law applied and by the fourteenth century the communes of the counties and the towns were able successfully to vindicate in parliament their claim to be a part of the populace to which that law and all provisions affirming it were common it is clear that such a principle could not be enforced and could indeed hardly arise before the composition of parliament was settled on the basis which it retained until the legislation of the nineteenth century naturally while that composition was still unsettled this principle was doubtful even if a law must be utentium approbata how could the whole communitas angliae consent in parliament at first apparently while the composition of parliament fluctuated there was doubt as to the validity of an enactment until it had been proclaimed locally throughout the realm only gradually did the theory arise that the whole of england was constructively in parliament that they were all assumed to be there consenting to what parliament did the theory of representation was complete in the fourteenth century the fact that much of the representation was only virtual need give us little concern when we remember that this remained equally true for five hundred years after and that to a certain extent it is true today this theory then did not necessarily give to the estates in parliament alone the right to legislate for particular persons classes or places that might be done by the king by charter or otherwise with the assent of those only who were affected neither did it require the assent of all the estates in parliament unless that assent was given to some enactment which touched them all the one thing that obviously did touch them all was an enactment affecting the lex communis to that the assent of all was necessary third this theory of the participation of the estates in enactment if true will in part explain the nature of the enactments of parliament themselves 
statutes are enactments of law perpetuellement à durer if this law happens to be common then all must assent but the real distinction between statute and ordinance which gave coke so much trouble does not arise from the difference between enactments of common law and other enactments nor from the fact that the king lords and commons must all unite upon a statute while this is not necessary for an ordinance as coke thought the real difference is that a statute in its original meaning is an affirmance of law if it is in affirmance of the common law it shares the nature of the law it interprets and i have tried to show that one of the characteristics of that common law is its permanence and its supremacy in the realm like the law it authoritatively interprets a statute in affirmance of the common law is permanent also it has become in a sense a part of that law statutes affecting law other than common are for a long time less numerous and less important and the name statute was probably applied to them later than to acts for the whole realm and on the analogy of the latter but the essential characteristic in all cases seems to be the purpose on the part of those enacting that their work shall endure for all future time a characteristic that parliamentary statutes were conceived to have because their origin was traceable to the affirmance of a law that was permanent extending a tempore cuius non extitit memoria this theory is weakened somewhat in the fifteenth century but it is safe to say that this is the general conception of parliamentary legislation from the thirteenth century on statutes are enactments perpetuellement à durée it is their permanence that makes them statutes and necessitates somewhat greater formality in their promulgation than is necessary in acts of a character less permanent and therefore less important ordinances on the other hand are temporary provisions which are not considered to affect the permanent law unless they are re-enacted in form of a statute as they often were the essence of a statute then is permanence that of an ordinance is its temporary character statutes in affirmance of the common law had to be assented to by all so had ordinances if they touched all the estates represented in parliament both statutes and ordinances are found that touch fewer classes when they are only those classes so affected need assent in order to make them binding law for them these distinctions are like the conception of affirmance much clearer in the fourteenth century than in the fifteenth when many of the older ideas of parliament's functions are becoming blurred and precedents are beginning to form which are later to furnish the basis for the modern theory of legislative sovereignty these are the three chief points which the contemporary records seem to me to indicate in regard to the nature of enactment before taking up their bearing on the history and nature of magna carta i shall set forth a few of these records under the three headings mentioned above and first under that of one the affirmance of common law 
in this connection nothing is more significant than the words of the preambles of edward i's two remarkable statutes of westminster which more than anything else he did justify the application to him of the title the english justinian footnote the enactments of the statute of westminster first three edward i twelve seventy five are said to be made because the king desired quote, to redress the state of the realm in such things as required amendment for the common profit of holy church and of the realm and because the state of the holy church had been evil kept and the prelates and religious persons of the land grieved many ways and the people otherwise entreated than they ought to be and the peace less kept and the laws used and the offenders less punished than they ought to be by reason whereof the people of the land feared less to offend the second thirteen edward i is in some respects more explicit as is also the statute of gloucester six edward i twelve seventy eight and many others of this reign so remarkable in this respect edward's preambles are much more instructive than later when parliamentary enactment had become a matter of course prefaced by stereotyped phrases or by none at all End footnote. one statement in the preamble to the second statute is particularly interesting it recites the fact that at gloucester in the sixth year of the reign certain statutes had been passed but that certain cases remained undetermined quidam casus in quibus lex deficiebat remanserunt non determinati quidam enim ad reprimendum oppressionem populi remanserunt statuenda hence the present statute commenting on this the author of the mirror says Quote, what is said in the second statute of westminster as to the failure of law in divers cases is open to objection because for all trespasses there is law ordained though it may be disused forgotten or perverted by those who know it not and the first three articles are no statutes but merely revoke the errors of negligent judges the first of these three articles is the important enactment de donis conditionalibus which certainly does do nothing but restore the law as it was before judicial decision modified it in his biting comments on this and the other important enactments of the early part of edward's reign the same author says for example one is no statute but the revocation of an error another affirms rather than repeals an error another though it is but common and ancient law gives insufficient remedy another is merely the revocation to right law of a prevailing error another is a novelty injurious to the lords of fees another seems rather error than law another no statute but lawless will and pleasure another is founded upon no right another is not founded on law while others are just humbug truth for they are not regarded he also refers to alfred's laws as a statute under which quote, divers ordinances were made by divers kings down to the present time 
which ordinances are disused by those who are less wise and because they are not put in writing and published in definite terms End quote. the form of the coronation oath which remained with but few modifications until the accession of william and mary was probably used first at the coronation of edward the second it was certainly used at the coronation of henry the fourth in it there is one promise that was not demanded before quote, concedis justas leges et consuetudines esse tenendas et promitis per te eas esse protegendas et ad honorem dei corroborandas quas vulgus elegerit secundum vires tuas respondebit concedo et promito this is the oath so much referred to by the king and by parliament in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries and its importance is very great in the history of enactment the celebrated ordinances of thirteen twelve provide that all the statutes made en amendement de la loi et au profit du peuple by the king's ancestors soit gardé et maintenu si avant comme être devient par loi et raison provided they are not contrary to the great charter the charter of the forest or the present ordinances and that if any statute were made contre la forme sudite soit tenu pour nul et tout autrement défait two entries on the parliament roll for thirteen forty three during the struggle of the king and parliament are instructive on this point it was agreed that the statute of two years before the fifteenth regnal year of edward the third soit de tout repelle et aniante et perde non d'estatue comme celle qui préjudicielle et contraire à loi et usage du royaume et aux droits et prérogatives de notre seigneur le roi but as there are certain articles embraced in the said statute which sont raisonnables et accordant à loi et à raison the king and his council agree that these articles together with others agreed upon in the present parliament soit fait estatut de novelle on the advice of the justicie et autres sages est tenu à toujours in the same parliament the commons pray that the statutes concerning grants be observed the king replies that since he perceived that le dit estatut fut contre son serment et en blemissement de sa couronne et de sa royalté et contre la loi de la terre en plusieurs points it should be repealed but he wishes that the articles of the said statute be examined and that such as are found honourable et profitable pour le roi et son peuple soient refaits en nouvelle statue et garde des sorts in thirteen forty seven the commons petitioned that a plaintiff recovering damages on a writ of trespass should have execution on the defendant's lands but were answered by the king that this could not be done sans estatut upon which he desires the advice of his council and will do what seems best pour son peuple in thirteen forty eight the commons prayed that the king would give no response changing their petitions as a result of any bill presented in parliament in the name of the commons 
by advice of the prelates and grands the king replied to these petitions touchant de la loi de la terre que les lois eues et usées en temps passé ne le procès d'icel usé ce en arrière ne se pourront changer sans en faire nouvelle estatue à que chose faire le roi ne pouvait donc ne encore peut entendre par certaines causes mais à plus tôt qu'il pourra entendre he with his council will ordain touching those articles and others touchant amendement de loi according to reason and equity for all his lieges and subjects and for each of them a very important entry occurs in the roll for the twenty-fifth regnal year of edward the third where the parliament interprets the law of succession notre dit seigneur le roi veuillant que tout doute et avoir fuisse out et la loi en ce cas déclare et mise en certaine fit charger les prélats comtes barons et autres sages de son conseil assemblés à ce parlement à faire délibération sur ce point les queues d'un ensemble ont dit que la loi de la couronne d'angleterre est et adeste toujours tielle laquelle loi notre seigneur le roi les dix prelats comtes barons et autres grands et toute la commune assemblée et l'endit parlement approuve et affirme pour toujours for much of the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries the parliaments are regularly opened by a pronunciatio such as the one which states among the chief reasons for the summons que les statues faits se en arrêt pour amendement des lois de la terre et du peuple ne sont pas gardés ni usés en leur effet another which urges that the good laws and customs be guarded and preserved and violators punished another asking the commons for information comment ces lois de sa terre et les statues sont gardées et exécutées or one which announces that it is the will of the king that the laws seraient tenues et gardées and promises that by letters under the secret seal or privy seal or otherwise la commune loi ne serait disturbée ni le peuple en leur poursuite aucunement délayé for the same period the petitions of the commons usually begin with a prayer such as the one in thirteen seventy nine which asks among other things that the common law of the land be held as used in the time of the king's ancestors as seen in many of the instances given above affirmance and interpretation often go together in reenactments of the law as well as supplementary provisions of great importance but bracton was expressing the conception of his time in distinguishing what adds to the law from what is contrary to it non destruitur quod in melius commutatur so he says a writ is quashed if contra jus et regni consuetudinem et maxime contra cartam libertatis si autem praeter jus fuerit impetratum dum tamen fuit ratione consonum et non iuri contrarium erit sustinendum dum tamen a rege concessum et a concilio suo approbatum 
the general business of a parliament was well stated in the pronunciato of the parliament of the thirty-eighth regnal year of edward the third to be les lois coutumes et statuts et ordinances en son temps et en temps de ses ancestres faites maintenir et si nul soit que besoigne déclaration ajustement ou hartement selon le cas temps et nécessité ensement de leur bon avis et conseil déclaré ajouté retraire et amendé the great importance of affirmance in enactment is also illustrated in the limits which were set to the king's dispensing power the one kind of statute with which he might not dispense was the kind passed in affirmance of the law End of section 9